Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia. Everybody's looking for memory loss because because that is a function of a network that's coming under fire. But it's also people who profoundly lose track of, of where they are, what they're doing, what the situation might be, because they're just not quite clued into to their surroundings and, and context. Hi, it's Hilton Copy with you again. If you're new to the series, it's a podcast made by GPs for GPs and other health professionals who want to learn more about dementia. But I should add that if you have an interest, any interest in dementia, whether you're a health professional or a carer, or you just want to learn more about it, we're not going to get too technical, so please stay with us. In a moment, we'll learn more about something that confounds all of us as GPs. How do you tell the difference between normal ageing and what are the signs and symptoms of a dementia. Like always, each episode I'm joined by my colleagues from Dementia Training Australia, Dr Marita Long and Dr Stephanie Daly. So Steph, what are we going to be talking about today? As we age, everybody has trouble remembering things. We'll often lose our phone, I'm always doing that, or keys, forgetting names of famous people, and that's part of normal ageing. What we're going to hear about today is what's the difference between normal ageing forgetfulness and the forgetfulness and difficulties that people have when they have dementia. So Marita, you've spoken to neuroscientist Dr Matthew Kirkaldi about this. He's from the Wicking Dementia Education and Research Centre at the University of Tasmania. Would you like to introduce Matt for us? Yeah, so the great thing about Matt is that he told me he came to the Wicking Centre as a brain guy. That was his words. But And his actual area of interest was the cerebral cortex, and that's a part of the brain that's most affected by dementia. But in spending more time at the Wicking Dementia Education and Research Centre, which is quite a unique centre, he said he's really come to appreciate the larger picture of dementia, the impacts on people and their family and community, but also how family, community and a person's environment have an effect on um, the symptoms of dementia. It's really interesting because it's really about breaking down those silos in many ways and opens up some really new understandings of the condition of dementia. So we started by talking about the day-to-day functionality of a healthy brain. Because it comes so easily to us, it's not widely appreciated how great the brain is at doing what it does, which is taking in a context in a situation, forming a, a strategy or a, a response and then and then dealing with it in a in a useful and productive way. We tend to think of like the stuff that the brain does as things that require mental effort, like remembering somebody's phone number long enough to write it down or remembering the capital of Lithuania or or this these are the sorts of kind of show off things that we do with our cortex, but it's the bread and butter arrive in a situation, understand what's going on, immediately bring to mind familiar patterns of behaviour. That's all kind of iceberg stuff that's submerged Mm -hmm. below the surface. But when we lose it, it's kind of profoundly shocking and you realise what else is going on in that brain when some of those things that we take for granted get affected. What sort of changes in the brain happen as we get older? 
as the brain ages, what we see is that the cerebral cortex, which has bulked up and built up this very dense, rich connection network across the course of our life based on experience, begins to shrink to some extent. Not really through the death of brain cells. What it is is actually the, the connectivity between these cells sort of tails off a bit. So as we age and the connectivity perhaps gets pruned back a bit, then we do experience loss, particularly in the parts of the brain that are sort of the rich um, association networks. So, so when you think of something and all the other things that come to mind, all your knowledge of, of what that thing is and how it fits in context, perhaps that doesn't come as easily to you. Perhaps it takes a little more effort to, you know, bring to mind things that, that would previously have, have just popped up for you. Right. So that's when, so people who do say that, you know, sometimes I just can't get the word out, you know, and I used to be so good with my words, but, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. I can't get it. Is that something that's relatively normal with aging? To me, that, that is a, a normal thing. It's, it's a bit like kind of the noise level of the brain comes up a bit as we age. We lose some of the glial support networks, this myelin that, that um, maintains fast and accurate connectivity. It starts to kind of tail off a bit after we hit a peak in our 40s. So what we're left with is a, is a sort of a brain that's reflecting a lifetime's experience, but in which perhaps the pathways that, that link concepts together or, or bring things to mind are a little less well-maintained. And so, so it, it becomes a bit more effortful. The other thing that's really important to say is that stress and anxiety have an enormous effect on cognition. And so mm. if somebody is concerned, if they're anxious that they're developing a dementia or something like that, often the anxiety itself um, can produce cognitive changes that in some ways kind of feed into this notion that, that they are losing it a bit. I think that's a really uh, interesting point that, you know, people who are coming in thinking they have dementia, who have that insight that something's not quite right, is often a key that there might be something more like anxiety or stress. Um, often with dementia or in general practice, particularly, we, it's usually someone else coming in talking about their mum or their partner and noticing changes, not the person themselves, like in that setting. Yeah, we, we tend to notice when something goes, but we don't notice what we're still doing well. And so I think it becomes easy to focus on loss rather than on capability. The other thing that I think is perhaps more sensitive, people are used to thinking of, of dementia mm -hmm. as a loss of memory because it's the most obvious or relatable symptom that people see, but it's often it's orientation and being able to accurately place oneself in context and react appropriately to a situation that that's I believe, a little more commonly affected and perhaps it's harder for other people to pick up. They don't know what somebody else's internal experience is and so mm -hmm. they might not notice if somebody's feeling a little disoriented or kind of slips out of sync. You know, I had some experience with a family member who had dementia who was a person who really responded to social situations and, and was able to kind of nuance his, his replies and his conversation to, to the, the situation he was in. And when that began to slip, that was when we realised there was something different about him and it was a qualitative difference. It wasn't just, you know, taking longer to find a word or, or that kind of thing. It was a, a shift in the personality or the, the character of the person. This is, again, where I think primary care is so important because you do form those relationships where you know mm. people's context and, 
their character and their personalities. And of course, you know, other family members who might be much more sensitive to these things than, than the individual themselves, also a, a vital part of the process of, of understanding how somebody might be changing and whether it is just a, a graceful loss of, of efficiency or whether it's something, you know, more more pathological. Significant. Yeah. I remember someone telling me that, you know, your memory does slow down, your processing speed slows down, mm. but your life experience can help compensate mm. for a lot of those changes. Is that how you would make sense of that normal aging as well? Yeah, 100%. What we've got in the cortex is a, a very dense network that links together things that are significant. And anything that you've encountered before or has been important to you is rich with meaning and rich with association. Um, and this is all based on physical connections that we develop during our life. You know, we, we have experience during the day and then during the night we sleep and the brain literally rewires itself to accommodate that. And so the breadth and the intensity of experience that we have during our life creates a network that is maybe, you know, either runs along a few familiar channels and is good at dealing with some situations and a bit, you know, thrown off by the unfamiliar, or people who have sought complicated, difficult challenges or who have had a lot of variety in their life experience or their work um, will often have much more what we think of as resilient networks that that have a, a richness of connectivity such that if you start to, you know, lose some of the elements of that or the connections break down to some extent, there's still a lot there and still, a, you know, many ways to solve the same problem and many ways to access that information. So we name that concept cognitive reserve, this, this idea that richness of life experience creates um, a resilient brain. And that will be resilient both to the changes of ageing, but also to disease processes such as those that cause dementia. It was a bit like the difference between having a bulletproof vest versus a pane of glass. You know, you can apply the same amount of force. A bulletproof vest is physically engineered to spread that force out so that it absorbs the same amount of energy, but it doesn't break whereas a pane of glass will absorb that energy, but because it's not as well connected as a bulletproof vest, the focus of that force will blow through and break it apart. So we might just pause the interview there. Um, I was I was really struck the way Matthew was able to so clearly talk about the relationship between stress and anxiety and a person's functioning. It's a theme that we've discussed already in our first episode, and it's one that'll come out in the other episodes. But the thing, Marita, that uh, I wanted to ask you about was this concept about cognitive decline or dementia being more than just a memory problem. Yeah, such an important point. And again, something that will hammer home throughout the course of the podcast series. But I really like the way that, yeah, he talked about the inability for people living with dementia to kind of understand their context. So arriving at a place, but perhaps not being able to make sense of the situation or remember their familiar patterns of behaviour. And I think that can really explain why often we hear from people or carers that the story of, oh, you know, mum's just not playing bowls anymore. She's, she's sort of just given it up. 
And we think, um, is that because her knees are sore? We know she's got osteoarthritis. Is she getting depressed or is there something else going on here? And I think something like that, a change in behavior like that should always prompt us to say, oh, so have you noticed any other changes or are you finding it difficult going anywhere else? And I think that could be a real um you know, clue that there could be more going on that needs a little bit of exploration. And and the other thing that he said that really struck me was this concept of a resilient brain. Yeah, I think he talked about it with reference to panes of glass or something. And it really does highlight how we can, you know, prevent some of the things, some of these changes that happen in the brain by taking care of our brain, sort of the concept of brain health. And it, it goes back to that stress and anxiety thing. And I think he said during the time when we sleep, our brain kind of processes everything and and restores itself by the time you wake. And that really goes back to that thing of if you have a healthy life, you you sleep well you minimize your anxiety and and stress, then those can be really protective factors that can help you prevent getting things like dementia. I'm really keen to hear the rest of the interview. So there's normal ageing and then we get into this sort of grey zone that I know as a GP I find very confusing and that's mild cognitive impairment. What does that even mean? They're pretty elastic terms. MCI has most meaning when it's considered against the background of somebody's, you know, lifelong cognitive abilities. Mm-hmm. It can be in a particular domain, but, but that's usually, you know, more diagnosable. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if we just have a generalized kind of loss of orientation or loss of the ability to to bring new cognitive abilities to mm-hmm. a situation, then um, we might talk about a, a mild cognitive impairment. And a lot of the tests that are sensitive to cognitive impairment and, and can be used in building a diagnosis of MCI, there's no, you know, one gold standard or, or mm-hmm. single diagnostic that will um, give a definitive answer. A lot of them are around orientation to situation, being able to pick up on cues, being able to follow a sequence of intention, you know, to begin a task and, and see that task through to the mm-hmm. end. And so a lot of these things, because we're coming back again to this idea of orientation and being able to understand a situation in context, they tend to be quite sensitive to damage to the hippocampus. In a healthy aging brain, the hippocampus is is still self renewing. You know, it's one of the few places in the in the brain where new brain cells are born every day. Mm. The the rate slows down a bit as we age, but it does renew because every day is a new day, and we we run this kind of internal journal and maintenance of context around what we're doing. We know where we were when we began the day. We know where we are. We know what's happening at the moment, and we know you know, what we intend to do later on. And that that's kind of a hippocampal function more so than a cortical function. Cortex right. is like it's like baked in knowledge of, of a lifetime's experience, whereas the hippocampus is more about, you know, putting the threads together to, um, to keep it together across the course of the day. And so a lot of these cognitive tests tend to be quite sensitive to hippocampal damage. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that's probably my best answer as to what MCI is. It, it's like a a difficulty in marshalling the resources to, um, to you know, see a task through to understand what is going on around you and how to behave in that environment, mm-hmm. etc. Mild cognitive impairment can be just how you are. So you can have always been like that 
Mm. Or it can be a change potentially that's been experienced post perhaps being unwell or maybe starting a new medication or something like that. Or it can be a marker of a change in the brain that might be signaling that there is a dementia evolving. Is that kind of how you'd understand it? Yeah, that makes the the phenomenon of MCI really hard to grapple with because mm-hmm. there are so many potential causes. I mean, depression is is a very you know significant cause of cognitive impairment mm-hmm. in in older people and is frequently misdiagnosed for dementia, um, or the two may co-occur mm-hmm. um, and interact with each other. But you know, there are many other issues like cardiovascular problems that reduce the circulation of blood to the brain or low level inflammation and those sorts of things that can put a load on the system and show up as a cognitive defect, whereas it's not a disease process that's specific to the brain. Um, People post-surgery or recovering from major illness, as you say, um, will often experience a a transient dip in in cognitive abilities. Mm. So it's a lot of these assessment tools are, Mm. are instruments that give, you know, one point in what's really a cloud of evidence, this whole, you know, ability to talk to family members or to use your previous knowledge of an individual to to get a context around what's going on, how things change with time, mm-hmm. um, all very key elements in forming an opinion about what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think the change with time is probably the most significant of those. Watching how cognitive test scores change gives you an indication as to whether, as you say, this is just kind of a pervasive... Baseline kind of... level of cognition as opposed to something that's changing. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of MCI is thought to be prodromal to the major dementias, specifically Mm. Alzheimer's in most cases. And it is very true that people who have a diagnosis of MCI much more often go on to develop a dementia than the general population does. So it might be sort of 10 to 15% Mm. compared to 1% to 3%. But whether MCI is just the first whispers of, of the disease showing up, or whether it's a state that then evolves to a disease state. You know, these are very much open questions. Diagnosis of dementia itself is is very complex and mm-hmm. subtle and very frequently um, inaccurate, not through any fault of the diagnostician, but these things are easy to mistake for one another when, when you've got standardised tests and, and a limited knowledge of how the brain does cognition. How then does the brain change to the point where we're starting to see someone present with an illness like Alzheimer's? There are some key differentiators of of a pathological process like that from the normal ageing process of the brain. Number one of those is probably cell death. So the rate of nerve cell loss in the brain over normal ageing is it's there, but it's not a big drop off in the number of, of neurons. Whereas In Alzheimer's, once the disease gets going, we see a lot of profound cell death. And so when a single neuron dies, you might think, well, you know, I've got 100 billion neurons, that's not too bad. But when we consider the fact that each neuron makes probably 80,000 connections, you lose 100 neurons, you've lost 8 million connections, you know. it's it's, Obviously not all of them are vital or in use. But, yeah, I mean, the, the nerve cells almost exist as a, as a kind of a focal point for the actual connectional structure. So it's the loss of that that really drives the process. We lose them in in areas that in the cortex, we lose a bit of the sort of association areas that are bridging between 
sound and vision or between space and, and vision and, and audition and stuff. So, so a lot of that association cortex, it, it naturally degrades with aging anyway. But when a disease like Alzheimer's or frontotemporal dementia kicks off, it really hits those areas very hard, very early. The sort of primary cortical regions that deal with, you know, the processing of sensory activity or the control of movement, et cetera, are relatively untouched early on. So we really we lose a, the richness of our cortical network, mm-hmm. the part of the, the cortex that, that continues to change across the course of our life because most of the nervous system is kind of locked down before adolescence, but the cerebral cortex actually is changing its connectional structure for our entire lives. We, we're always updating. We're always adding a bit new knowledge. And so those areas that are a bit more plastic seem to be the areas that get hammered by the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. And the other big difference that I alluded to before is the hippocampus, the, the associational network, which is tucked away under the temporal lobe there, gets absolutely decimated by Alzheimer's. So if we, if we look at normal aging or healthy aging, I should say, then we see a relative preservation of the hippocampus. It, it holds up its volume compared to the rest of the cortex. Mm. But if we look in Alzheimer's at an MRI of the, of the brain, we see this marked atrophy of the hippocampus. And of course, that is that orientation structure, tying together the threads of the day, keeping a sense of, of continuity, a sense of purpose, a sense of context. Ordinarily, as we lose neurons, as we, as we lose connectivity, the brain is extraordinarily good at covering the cracks, you know, at working around, you know, a loss of function or something like that. It'll be rerouted or just sort of papered over, as I said. Whereas if you have profound damage to the hippocampus, then it shows up in ways that other people notice. And how, how would we notice that then? What are the key um, changes that, that a, a spouse or a child or a friend might notice? You know, we've got this vast store of learning that we build up in the brain and its purpose is to to guide our behaviour and to, to allow us to react to a situation in a very kind of knowledgeable, nuanced, sophisticated way. And it's really the erosion of that contextual ability that is probably the most noticeable thing Aside from, you know, me- everybody's looking for memory loss because, yeah. because that is a function of a network that's coming under fire. The ability to bring things up from the past is becomes more effortful, but it's also people who profoundly lose track of, of where they are, what they're doing, what the situation might be talking to somebody in a situation in a way that's really inappropriate to the situation because they're just not quite clued into to their surroundings and, and context. Those are the sorts of things that you would see with hippocampal damage, the, the inability to follow a long intentional sequence, you know, to, to go through a sort of a program of I'm going to, you know, go to the car, I'm going to go to these particular shops that I need for particular needs and then come back and do these other things. And losing those kinds of threads, I think, is, is something that's quite noticeable. Thanks for that. Uh, doing that interview with Matthew Morita, there he used the analogy of uh, tying threads together. So let's see if we can tie some of the threads together of that very rich conversation. Steph, um, Matthew spoke about cognitive tests changing with time, but we know in general practice we look at so much more than just the cognitive screening tests. 
He raised an interesting point, I think, about the screening tools and relating that to the deficiencies that you might be having within your brain structure. And so when we do a screening tool and someone might have a deficiency in their visual spatial impairment, for example, we want to see whether that's changing over time. And this really goes to the fact that reviewing people on a regular basis, perhaps every six or 12 months, can give you a real insight into the difficulties that they're having. And speaking to them about how they are managing day to day gives you context to those screening tools to see if things are changing over time and whether this is mild cognitive impairment or the start of perhaps a dementia. And mild cognitive impairment is something that we're going to hear a lot more about, I think, in the future. And it's something to be aware of, even though the concept is still quite difficult to understand. Yeah, totally agree with that. So I think it's good to get your head around that concept that it might be someone's baseline. It might be something that's happened after an anaesthetic or after an illness, or it could be that prodromal phase of dementia. And I think that's why we're going to be hearing a lot about it in the future. It's interesting you bring that thing up about an anaesthetic, because I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day, and they noted exactly that someone in hospital had a screening test done seven hours after they came out of an anaesthetic and obviously performed really badly because anybody would if you've just had an anaesthetic. And then they were referred to a memory clinic for consideration of a diagnosis of dementia. And so that just highlights the appropriateness of doing that test at that time and then reviewing also that person when they're well. Yeah, you can see how quickly a label, you know, escalates to a diagnosis without anyone looking at the context. Yeah. So context was something else that Matthew spoke about and the ability of the hippocampus to help a person contextualise where they are in space, in time, in where they are in their day. Would you like to expand a little bit on what you've noticed with that, Marito? Yeah, I really love the way Matt uses his words and uh, that shrinkage or atrophy of the hippocampus slowing things up and as you said the ability to tie the threads of the day together he says there's a loss of continuity and a sense of purpose or context and i think you know that's one of the probably more subtle changes you know he talked about that can be hard for people to to sometimes pick up and that loss of intention to complete a task. I remember when my dad retired, he had a vascular and Alzheimer's dementia. He took over the cooking at, at home and the shopping. And every week he'd go shopping and every week he'd come home with a big family-sized tin of Nescafe instant coffee and a big tub of flora margarine. And he might get a few other things, but they were always there. And when we'd come to visit, he'd try and sort of fob off his purchases because it was looking a bit ridiculous in the pantry. But he just couldn't make sense of what he was doing or why he was doing that. But it was, I guess, that subtle change that there was something different. And we all sort of fobbed it off of Dad just being a little bit, you know, old and obsessed with the specials at the supermarket. But, you know, things became evident as time went on. So it's having those little nuance changes to behaviour that can be quite a marker for something happening. So like we often say, it's more than memory and we talk about the five domains of dementia and a change in behaviour, as your father exhibited, was one of the signs that he was developing or had developed a dementia. Mm. So we might wrap things up there for this episode. There was some mention about the courses that are run out of Wicking Dementia 
in Tasmania. Marita, can you just tell us a bit more about those? Yeah, so I guess really worth mentioning two of their courses or massive open online courses called MOOCs. They're free. They've developed one on preventing dementia and another one on understanding dementia that have been delivered to hundreds of thousands of people, actually. And they're great short little courses, useful for anyone, a carer, someone with dementia, doctors, nurses, whoever has an interest in dementia. And then I guess specifically for us as GPs, they do now offer a master's of dementia that you could probably, you know, take some units out as a postgrad diploma. And I guess the impact of how that might help your practice, it would be really useful to talk to Steph because she's actually done some postgraduate studies in the UK. Yeah, and I really found it very useful for my practice. It gave me a lot of confidence to understand exactly how to make the diagnosis and the difficulties that people experience. And we did a lot of work on patient-centred care as well, so as well as post-diagnostic support. So it's given me a really good grounding in understanding how to help people living with dementia. So as always, check the episode notes on the podcast platform for the links to those courses that we've mentioned in this episode and in other episodes. Next time, we'll take a step-by-step walk through the process of making a diagnosis of a dementia. That's right. We'll share our experiences as GPs and as trainers in dementia diagnosis so that next time you see a patient who seems maybe a little bit more confused or forgetful than usual, you'll know exactly the questions to ask, how to raise the issue with empathy and how to involve the family or carer in that conversation. And in the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website dta.com.au or follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook or at Dementia Train AU on Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you all next time. If you're a person living with dementia, or if you're a family member or carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500, or you can visit dementia.org.au. Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia, which is funded by the Australian Government.